would you please stand with me for a teaching from the scriptures? We're going we're gonna to read through about 10 verses in Paul's autobiography in his letter to the Galatians. We're going line by line through this together. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, and I took Titus along also. And I went in response to a revelation, meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles, and I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. But we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Next slide. And as for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me because God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, these esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. And they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And all that they asked would that we, that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. Go ahead and have a seat. Okay, so you guys, last week, if you were here, we talked about those 14 years at the beginning of this passage that Paul spent in obscurity, in obscurity. And this was where he developed the character to be trustworthy with real spiritual power that carried them and followed him the rest of his life. And it's where he developed the inner strength to choose the cross and not the throne. And by the way, if you missed that teaching, I highly recommend you go back and listen to it on the podcast because it's such an important take on what it means to be a leader in the kingdom of Jesus. But today, we're gonna be looking at sort of the rest of this passage and what we're gonna call the futurist vision of Paul, the futurist vision of Paul, and how that vision continues to be sort of subversive and making waves even up until our present day. So last, uh, let, let's imagine for a moment that we could roll back the clock three years to 2019. Wouldn't that be nice? Let's say we roll back the clock three years, and let's say three years ago I gave you $10,000, and you could invest those $10,000, and whatever you were able to invest and, and earn, you, you could keep for yourself. But let's say, as a part of our little experiment here, that you could only invest in one of two companies. The first company is WeWork, the flashy new tech startup that's opening up all of these offices and signing all these commercial leases in, in big global cities like London and Seattle and New York and San Francisco and places like that. It looked like that was the way of the future, or so we thought. Or you could invest in the unknown, far less cool company that sells hand sanitizer, let's just say, for example. Back in 2019, Man, we would have all been putting our money down on WeWork. It should have been the smart investment to make a return. But, you know, we know now that it was just like a good idea at the exact wrong time. 
But if we knew back then what we now know in light of current events, man, we'd all be in the hand sanitizer business right now because we would be making a killing based on current events and based on a futurist vision. But, as, but if I were, let's just say in 2019, if I were aggressively buying into a company like Purell, you would be like, what, what is wrong with you, man? Like, this is absolutely crazy. But as crazy as that might sound, in 2019, that would have been the exact right thing to do based on current events and based on a futurist vision. And in a way, that's kind of the situation that Paul has found himself in. He's a futurist. He's got a vision that very few people see. So he's getting from his people all kinds of weird looks and all kinds of confusion because of his message and because of the places that he's going with his gospel that no one else really has the courage to see yet and no one else is aggressively buying. He's kind of like, Paul's kind of like a hand sanitizer guy in 2019. Dude, why are you buying so much Purell right now? What they should have been asking was, was, was what am I missing? And Paul, that's what in, in the letter to the Galatians, he's trying to reveal to the people of Galatia, he's trying to send the message to the church, don't miss the heart of the gospel. And that's precisely what this is all about. So Jesus' vision for his church is future-oriented. And as his followers, we are the ones who are aggressively buying into what God has said his future kingdom will be like. We are aggressively buying what he has said his kingdom will be like. And he said that his kingdom will be filled with righteousness and with justice and what the Bible calls shalom. It's a big idea uh, of peace. He said that every ethnos, every family of the earth is on equal footing here in the church. And he said that this is, this is what the future kingdom will be like. And so for Paul and like what I'm going to call right-thinking Jesus people everywhere, we are radically redrawing the lines of family devotion to include anyone who trusts in Jesus, no matter how else we might be different. We're radically redrawing the lines to include anyone and everyone who follows after Jesus. Now, the, dis- the differences that we might share are, are manifold. Like, we, we, could, we have different ideology and personality and ethnicity and gender, and we come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, and we have a different marital status, some of us, right? We, we have different political views. Whether you are a boomer, Gen Xer, millennial, or Gen Z, or whatever else that you can think of, if we both call Jesus King, then we are devoted to each other in family love. It's that plain and simple. Now, you're not going to hear that uh, on Fox News or CNN or whatever your news media outlet of choice is. And please don't say Twitter or Instagram because that's not real news. But if you are like a right-thinking Jesus person anywhere, you are aggressively buying into that future whenever possible. Jesus said when he comes back, he's uniting all the families of the earth under him. And so this is what we're going to be prioritizing as a people. And by the way, Paul isn't coming to this conclusion, nor are we. We're not coming to this conclusion uh, by sort of taking shots in the dark. This is informed by current events. Paul is living in the early years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And when Jesus died on the cross and when he rose again, he signaled to us, he signaled to you and I that the kingdom of God has arrived and that the world is a completely different place as a result. This is an event in history where Jesus rose and walked out of the grave. And when that happened, the world fundamentally changed, including the old lines that used to divide us are completely wiped away. And in Christ, we are all one. Amen? Amen. 
So we see relationships. We see complex situations through the lens of the cross. Things like the culture wars of the early 21st century and people who are like diametrically opposed to each other. We can be miraculously restored and reconciled because the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. Now, what Paul is essentially saying in the letter to the Galatians is we don't make that correlation enough between the possibility of miraculous reconciliation and the risen Jesus coming out of the tomb on Easter morning. And he's saying we need to make that correlation more often. The cross changes everything, including how we draw our family lines. And Paul's not saying this is a side issue. He's saying this is actually really, really important. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, you got all that from those verses about Jewish spies and adult circumcision? Like, how did you get that? That's exactly what I'm saying. Let me show you what I mean. We're going to pull out a couple of phrases and we're going to look at them uh, one at a time, sort of explore their meaning together. So in verse 1, it says that after 14 years, Paul goes back to Jerusalem with Barnabas and this other like kind of up and coming Gentile Christian named Titus. Now, um, what else is going on is there is there's been a prophecy Um, that there's a famine coming to Jerusalem. And so the church at Antioch decides that they're going to take up an offering and they're going to raise a bunch of donations and they're going to support the Jerusalem church, much like you're helping do with with Sarah and things like our ministry to Brazil and things like that. So so that's what was was going on. The, 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 The church at the time recognized that they had brothers and sisters in need in a faraway place. And so they said, you know what? What we're going to do is is we're going to take up an offering and we're going to go support them. So some scholars think that that Paul intentionally is wanting to be disruptive. And so he brings Titus, who is a a Gentile person, in order to be intentionally disruptive to the Jewish Christians, who at the time were still super nationalistic. Maybe they were like intellectually okay, like intellectually okay with a Gentile person becoming a follower of Jesus as long as they were in a faraway place where they didn't actually have to embrace them. But embracing them as family was a completely different story that was well beyond their comfort zone. And so I think it's less likely that that's what Paul is up to. I think he's just bringing like a young, strong Roman citizen to help escort the money, okay? So this was picture a time before Venmo and Cash App, and you can't just like through the click of a button send money to a friend in need. They were actually carrying a a lot of currency over hundreds of miles to the Jerusalem church. So I think it's far more likely that Paul is bringing another Roman citizen who could sort of help and uh, fend off highway thieves if it came to that. It was probably most likely just a safety move. But whatever the case, bringing Titus, it did make a statement about who belongs in the family of God. And it made a lot of waves. Essentially, the question is, is it still the family of God, is it still just for the end group? Or is everyone welcome now that Jesus died for sins and rose again? And on what basis are you and I, on what basis are we welcomed into the family? Is it by faith alone in, in Jesus or do we believe and then we also have to follow the Torah on top and sort of like earn our keep through moral performance? So this is the debate going on at the time. And despite, uh, or excuse me, during the, 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 the height of this debate, while everyone's sort of on edge and not really sure how to still get along, even though there's this big fundamental difference, then Paul rolls into town with this Greek guy. And he's uncircumcised and he's not following the Torah and he's there. And that was scandalous enough for some. But for Paul and Barnabas, they're not just bringing Titus along, they're actually trusting him. 
And they're actually elevating him as a leader in the early church of, uh, of Antioch. And this was way, way, way outside of their comfort zone. But I love what God's doing here. I think it's actually kind of poetically beautiful. What I love is that if you were to put yourself in the situation of the early Jewish Christians, how can you argue with this guy, this Greek guy, who's full of smiles, filled with the Holy Spirit, and handing you a bag of money? Like, listen, we heard you had fallen on hard times, and so the Gentile church is just here to support you. So again, whether or not Paul is sort of architecting a situation to get a rise out of people or whatever to make his point, it's sort of besides the point. What's actually going on is that the Gentiles are showing up with generous, self-sacrificing love while the in-group is still trying to decide if they belong. <laughs> the the, the out-group is, is, is leading the way. In, 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 the, in the ethics of Jesus and practicing the lifestyle of Jesus. Think about the poetry and the beauty of that. While the elites, while the people who are supposed to kind of have it figured out, they're trying to decide if they should, whether or not they should let someone come into the fold. While that's going on, that person who they're beginning to ostracize or whatever, he, he's the one who's leading the charge with the lifestyle and the practices of Jesus, it's so beautiful. By the way, that history has repeated itself in the late 19th century here in America. I don't know if you know this, but it was after the end of the Civil War. It was the African-American church leaders who pioneered the integration between black and white evangelicals in the American South. I, I don't even have words to begin to describe or understand what that journey of forgiveness must have looked like in order for that to take place. Remember, it was many of the white evangelical churches who had used Bible verses to rationalize slavery. And it's our black brothers and sisters in the American South in the late 19th century who showed us that it's possible to forgive and to pioneer reconciliation in a situation like that. I have so much to learn. We have so much to learn from that example. And this is what I'm going to suggest to you. That is not just the way of love. It's also buying aggressively that, 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 that future vision. That these brothers and sisters who despite what had happened in their past and what was happening in the present... Despite all of that, they were the ones who were willing to say, you know what, I'm going to choose to anchor my life and orient my hope around the future promise that Jesus said he's coming again and he's uniting all the families underneath him. And so I'm going to go first. I'm going to lead the way. I'm going to pioneer this new family under Jesus. This is astounding to me, and it's absolutely beautiful. Again, instead of dividing over the old lines, remember when you guys enslaved us? Remember when we had to go to war in order to earn our freedom? Despite all of that, they, were, they had the bravery. They had the strength of character to see God's future kingdom. Again, where all ethnicities are united under Christ. And then they possessed the faith to pull that future into the present by embracing their former enemy. This is a profound, prophetic, amazing, incredible thing. And it's a miracle of love. I think it's a testament, too, of the power of the cross, that the evil and the sin and the injustice in the world and the broken systems and the broken relationships, all of these things, they can be healed by Jesus at the cross. And it's these uh, pioneers who see that future vision who are able to show us what that's really like. So all I have to say is this. I'm, quite frankly, just astounded and blown away at that kind of miracle of love. 
But I will say this, I think it's time for us to stop worrying a little bit about our comfort zones and what we're comfortable with. And I think it's time to start devoting ourselves to each other in family love, accepting that it's going to be absolutely really messy. And it's time for us to start learning from Jesus, uh, or excuse me, learning from Jesus people who are different from us. After the first gathering, I was talking with a friend, and they were like, oh my gosh, I think I'm following what you're saying, and I think I agree, but talk to me more about this. And I was just saying, you know, we want to, at Riverbend, we want to hold on to our orthodoxy with, with courage, but we want to be as inclusive as we possibly can be within that, 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 that orthodoxy. And what God is calling us into is a courageous orthodoxy. And as a part of our orthodoxy, we have to recognize that we're future people who are buying into that future vision. Um, when I was growing up, I, I was in this kind of small evangelical bubble. And I didn't even really know it. I was kind of subconscious to it. Uh, but today, oh, as, I've, as I've grown, in particular, like after I finished my first Bible degree, like after four years of Bible college, I, I began to realize just how small my evangelical world was. And I started to read other influences outside of that. And I began to be opened up to people from different cultures and different time periods and different theological streams. And I think it's actually for the good because I'm now I'm, I'm hopefully able to learn from a larger group of people who show me a different aspect or, or, or a part of who Jesus is. For example, there's this guy by the name of N.T. Wright. We laugh around here because we end up quoting him a lot. But N.T. Wright is this British theologian that I disagree with on several things, important things actually. But he also happens to be like the world's leading expert on the, uh, the, the world of the first century and the life of Paul. And so I read his work all the time. And I'll probably end up quoting him by the end of this passage or this message. Also, there's this, um, there's this pastor probably many of you know called John Piper. And he's really influential, particularly in the Reformed tradition. And um, his theology on providence, to me, uh, I disagree with. And on some days I'm like kind of a offended by it, quite honestly. But he is like, like undeniably such a massive servant in the kingdom of God who we have so much to be grateful for. He's far more experienced than me. He's way smarter than me. And by the way, not too long ago, he, he wrote the most on-point, convicting, and professionally dangerous opinion piece on what it means to be an evangelical in American politics of the last decade. And I have so much admiration and respect for him. Also, there's um, this woman by the name of Cynthia Long Westfall. She's a PhD researcher, a New Testament theologian. I've read a lot of her work. Uh, I disagree with a good portion of it, but it is, is filled with wisdom, and I can learn from her and, and as a thinker and as a leader in the church, absolutely. I'm also reading, right now I'm reading some contemplative mystics and, 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 and Catholic folks and some great stuff from before the, the, the Reformation and before the Enlightenment. So we're not just talking about people who differ from us theologically a little bit, but we're talking about people from different cultures and different time periods. And again, my argument is that I think we're better off having a wide range of Orthodox Jesus people who we can learn from when we're not only, uh, when we're just only willing uh, to learn from people who are basically already like us in almost every way, then we've just decided to cap how much we're going to grow into our depth, into our understanding and our relationship with the Lord. But I believe that the church is at its best when it is unified 
And it's a diverse body that brings glory to God. I think it's better for you. I think it's better for us. I think it's better for the church. And I think it's even better for the world. It's a witness to the world that the future promise that God has made is possible in the present. It's evidence that the new creation has happened, that Jesus walked out of the grave. It's all stuff that is, I, fills me with so much hope. I have to say that I have learned in the last probably two years, I've learned more from the Latino church than I have learned from any other group of people. And I'm just looking at Moses here in the front row with this loud shirt. I also uh, met, uh, he's the coolest guy, by the way. I went to Brazil with him. He's incredible. I learned from Ali, um, who, who, Ali, are you here today? Oh yeah, Ali's way in the back. Ali is a Brazilian woman who leads here the cry of Brazil. We're actively supporting them. My time in Brazil, I went to be a blessing. I wound up being led by her and so um, challenged by the way, the warmth and the embrace of the Latin culture. And then I also, a couple of weeks ago, I met my, my new sister, Anna Canales, Danny's mom. Danny's mom is in the house, you guys. Danny, Danny's mom is this incredible El Salvadorian woman. I met her a couple of weeks ago this morning. She's sitting in the front row. While as we were singing, she pulls out her phone and she shows me the way that she saved my number in her phone, Pastor Bombon, which is Pastor Marshmallow. She, <laughs> She spent her whole life in the Latino church, which is like such a gift to the Western in, hands in your pockets, American white evangelical church. And it's just the, the, the most amazing thing. And we're genuinely so, so grateful for the contribution that people who are outside of my little stream of theology and my little evangelical bubble, who, can, who we can learn from and hopefully you all can learn from us as well. And you're not just like, you, you are a part and you belong in this family. You have equal footing here just as anyone else. And I think it's time for the, uh, the evangelical church in the West to begin learning from the other influences in the world, particularly with the Latin church. The Latin culture is so warm, hospitable, embracing, generous. It's incredible. There's so much to learn from you all. So anyways, I say all of that to say this. The church is at its best when we are unified and diverse in every sense of that word. And it's okay. You can call me Pastor Bonbon. I'm, I'm okay with that. How's, how's my inflection, by the way? It's okay, it's okay. She said that my inflection's all right. Okay. So, um, so after Titus arrives in Jerusalem and he hands over that gift to the Jerusalem church, it should have sort of ended the, the debate. Like clearly Titus is a Jesus guy. Clearly Titus belongs in the family. But if you look at verse three and four, you'll find that there was actually still some controversy after that as well. Look at verse three. It says, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. And this matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. My gosh. Okay, so we don't exactly know um, what's all is happening here, but it seems like Paul's pretty confident there's some people in the community with bad, suspicious motives and things like that. But evidently, the conversation was something like this. Well, okay, Titus is here. Everyone, you guys know the rules. Titus, if you want to belong, someone's got to go sharpen that circumcising knife off in the corner because that's the only way that you can belong in the family is if you submit to the customs of the Jewish uh, tradition. And we sort of laugh and joke at that. We quite honestly can't relate to it. But it's the same problem that we have today with a different twist. We want to impose a certain set of behaviors in order for someone to belong in the church. Or we want to impose 
our customs or a culture that we're comfortable on outsiders before they can trust in Jesus and before that they can belong as a part of the family. That's not what this is about. Paul says, no, 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 no. We don't give into that line of thinking even for a second. He says, that's not what this is at. This is about. Titus is already a full-fledged member in the family of God. He doesn't need to conform to your customs in order to be accepted. He's believed in Jesus just like you have. He's received a gift of the Holy Spirit just like you have. And he is accepted by God's grace just like you. And verse 5 says that Paul considers that to be like preserving the integrity and the truth of the gospel. He says, that's, yeah, like when I fight for that, when I fight for the radical inclusion, the radical uncomfortable inclusion of people who don't fit to our, our standards or our, our customs or our forms or whatever, that is preserving the integrity and the truth of the gospel. Amen. Thank you, Geneva. So, skepticism and man-made religious hurdles twist the gospel into something that it's not. That's his point. Is when we put like religious hurdles in front of people, it twists the gospel into something that it's not. By contrast, we want to be the kinds of people who are motivated by the welcoming love of the gospel, not the suspicious zeal of religious elitism. And that's what's going on in that first century church. Maybe you've experienced this um, in your life. I know that I have. I think too often in the church, the rhetoric is right, but the attitude is off. You know what I mean? Rhetoric versus attitude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just, just look at our homepage on the website. The website, it says it right, right there in bullet, big, bold letters. Everyone belongs here. Everyone's welcome or whatever. But in reality, it's actually much more like a middle school cafeteria AKA like the most terrifying, terrifying place on earth. Maybe you guys were like the popular kids who had no problem. I had tons of, I had so much social anxiety about going into the middle school lunchroom. In fact, if there is a list of places on earth that I never want to go again, the middle school lunchroom is at the top of that list for me. I had so much social anxiety, and there's all these different cliques that are really hard to break into, and they never really mixed, and there was some weird politics that I didn't know how to navigate, and all of that's happening while everyone's going through puberty. <laughs> it's like a total nightmare. And, and too often, the church has kind of become that way. And of course, those of you who have found a home here or whatever else would never say that about us because we genuinely do try and be welcoming and loving and all of that. But in reality, the it, people's experience, hopefully not here, but certainly in the Western evangelicalism, has been, yeah, they, they talk a big game, but I'm not really sure that anyone's truly committed to me and is willing to embrace me as family. And that's, the, the church was designed for that, for family. And what Jesus in, in, in the New Testament and, and Paul through the New Testament is saying that that, that that kind of middle school lunchroom vibe is not the way of the kingdom. It's not the future vision that God has in mind for us where we say that everyone belongs, but in attitude and practice, it really what, really what we mean by that is if you're married and you're white and you're middle class and you live on the west side of Bend and you kind of get 
our jokes and our vibe and stuff like that. If you get all, if you, if you, if that's the kind of person you are, then you're going to fit in great. But if you're outside of that, even just a little bit, man, you really have to work hard to overcome that and to belong in the family. And uh, you have to become like us, the majority culture in just about every way. You have to dress, talk, behave like us. And if you wind up getting our vibe and, and can kind of conform to it, then I, then you can, you can belong here and you can get, you, you can be here. If not, you can probably still attend, but you'll be on the margins for, the while, for a while. You'll feel kind of uncomfortable, and eventually you'll leave because you just don't feel like this place is family. And I know I'm saying that with a somewhat critical lens, and I'm not putting that on any one of you. I really genuinely believe that we are a, a genuine, loving, kind, gracious church. That's at least what we strive to be. But I think we can all speak from experience that it's not always that way. It really has felt like the lunchroom before at church. And we want to be coming against that. I love what James 2 says. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. (laughs) Does it get any clearer than that? I don't think so. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in a filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, hey, I have a good seat for you. But if you say to the poor man, hey, you stand there or you sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I love that scripture for all kinds of reasons. But essentially what we're getting at here is that There is no room for discrimination of any kind based on ideology, ethnicity, or personality, or whatever the case. There's no discrimination in Jesus' vision at all. So this is our dream, and what I hope will be true of Riverbend, and would be a sign of our maturity if we one day get there. We want our reputation to be that we're creating the culture of the future reign of Jesus here in the present, right here in our community. Let me say that again. We want our reputation to be that we're creating the culture of Jesus' future reign here in the present, right here within these walls and in each of your communities. And if we can talk about it, that's great. If I can get up here and rant and rave about some awesome like, ideas and concepts, phenomenal. That's great. But what's truly important is that we're living it in actual attitude and practice. It's not just talking a big game, but it's actually living it out together. And as far as I can tell from Galatians, um, particularly the section that we read today, I think that creating the culture of the kingdom means at least six things. I just want to read for you really quickly, and then we're going to talk about really quickly, and then we're going to come to the tables. So hang with me. Um, Here's these six things. Um, Creating the culture of the kingdom, according to Galatians, we make room in our hearts for people who are different from me. Please let that settle in. We don't show favoritism. We don't divide over what is not the gospel. We forego our preferences for the sake of family unity. We practice hospitality. And we resist the pull to make secondary issues more central than celebrating the victory of Jesus. So let's go through these one at a time and really quickly. Um, number one, we make room in our hearts for people who are different from me. Again, that suspicious zeal of religious elitism, which is unfortunately still alive and well today, it wants to put people through the paces in order to belong. Like, yeah, 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 no, sure, fine, you can belong here. You just have to go through our set of hurdles in order to belong. That is a judgmental spirit that I believe is just frankly best put as sin. 
ask yourself the question, like, is your skepticism of someone helping you love that person? <laughs> is your skepticism of someone helping you to love them? If not, then it's not useful. It's not helpful. It's not good. You should probably confess that as sin. What God wants for us is to live a life of complete and total dedication to the way of love. I love what Francis Frangipane writes, which, by the way, I have to admit, I did pick up that book because of his name and how cool it sounded. But I'm really glad I bought it and read it because it's a really good book. It's called Helps to Holiness. In it, he writes this, We will never become holy by criticizing others, nor is anyone brought nearer to God through finding fault. Indeed, speak out against unrighteousness, but be motivated by the love of Jesus. Remember, it is written, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. So in the kingdom of God, unless you're first committed to die for people, you are not permitted to judge them. Unless you're first committed to die for people, you're not permitted to judge them. I love that. 1 John 3 says that no greater love has any man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. Of course, he's calling back to Jesus. Clearly, that's what he did. But he's also inviting you and I to do the same. And this is the very attitude of Jesus. And when you have that kind of disposition towards your, your brothers and sisters, then you are permitted to judge them. And by the way, this is not to say that there are not, there are not behaviors and there are not things in the church that need to be addressed and need to be called out and need to be corrected and all of that. But our disposition, our attitude, and our practice needs to be in the way of God's miraculous love, like what we learned from our African-American sisters and brothers from the late 19th century. Lay down your life for people. Remember, while Jesus was being mocked and when he was being spat on, as he was taking on the world's sin and dying on the cross, he called out to the Father, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the kind of radical, generous, reconciliatory love that Jesus is all about. That was a long word to say. Did you notice I said reconciliority or something like that? Something like that. I said it better the first time, but seriously, that's a big word. So I think not only is is loving in this way and making room in our hearts for people not only an important part of the culture of the kingdom, I also, I also think it's a, a good marker of your spiritual matur- maturity. The degree, the degree to which you've made room in your hearts for people who are different from you. I think that's actually a good marker of spiritual maturity. And the way that we get there, uh, I've said this again, or before I'll say it again, that we need to make room for long-form, person-to-person, in-face, uh, face-to-face interactions. Real long-form conversation with people. That's number one. Number two, we don't show favoritism. Remember, this is what in uh, verse 7 it says of God. God does not show favoritism. He doesn't, show, he doesn't uh, pick me over you or you over someone else. It's, it's hard for us to wrap our heads around this because we tend, to be, uh, we tend to show favoritism all the time. We think to ourselves, well, God must you know, prefer or, or uh, uh, favor people who are smarter or prettier or more wealthy or more influ- influential than me. The answer to that is, is actually no, he doesn't. He, that's not how God operates. Now, it is, of, true, of course, true that there are some people who enjoy God more, and they enjoy his presence more, and they enjoy uh, the, 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 the spirit of God and his power more than others, which, by the way, can be you. There's no reason why you cannot work this into your practice where you spend time daily in the quiet with God, and you begin to love and enjoy the presence of God in the exact same way as the people you most admire. That is a possibility for you. In fact, I'd love to show you, teach you. Come pray with us on Tuesday mornings, Wednesday mornings, Thursday evenings. 
I always got to slip that in there because we have an opportunity for you to learn to pray if you're jaded or, or unsure of how to get started. But God does not show favoritism. Everyone is God's favorite is probably the best way of saying that. So, of course, you're going to have, like, close friends. You're going to have people that you are deeply devoted to, like your nuclear family and probably your Riverbend community and things like that. But you don't withhold your devotion, your family devotion to people, or exclude them because they're not like you. Number three, we don't divide over things that are not the gospel. We don't divide over things that are not the gospel. This is a major theme, of course, in Paul's letter to the Galatians. And uh, later, much later in life, Titus becomes a pastor, and he is pastoring this, this group in Corinth. And Paul and him are still friends, and uh, Paul writes him, and there's this whole letter in the Bible called Titus. And in it, it says this, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time, and after that, have nothing to do with them. I like that. I, I have a feeling that what Paul is kind of doing is, hey, remember all those jokers from Jerusalem so long ago who were trying to squabble about the law and w- let you know that you, w- you couldn't belong because you weren't a Jew and you wouldn't follow the Jewish customs and all of that? He says, yeah, warn those kinds of divisive people a handful of times and then just don't even pay attention to their arguments anymore. Ignore them and just strive to be a person of peace. You want to be the kind of person who makes peace. And you know, Man, the last couple of years, we've seen so many, like, divisive people and tribes rise to the surface and try and, like, get in the way of what God wants to do and sort of mess up, divide family unity. And I'm just looking for those of you who are like, you know what? No, we're not going to let anything distract us from the plot. The plot is that Jesus is king and he's returning soon, and that's what we're going on about. Nothing, nothing else is going to capture our attention like the way of Jesus does. Um, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 3 says, It's an honor to avoid strife, but every fool, fool is quick to quarry. <laughs> quarrel. I love that. So there is this thing that's very true that when you are triggered by someone, I, I've had a few like out-of-state trolls following our Instagram feed and following our podcast feed lately, and they like to write me and tell me the things I'm saying wrong. It's whatever, but it's just kind of a thing that happens, and, um, which I'm not sure if I should be annoyed or flattered that like, they care enough from Florida to write me an angry email, but that's the life I live. So anyways, um, so it's easy when you, those kinds of things happen to be triggered by someone. And naturally, when we're triggered, we just automatically react. It's just how our brain chemistry works and things like that. But if we're wise and temperate and the Lord is with us, then we are creating a little bit of space between when we are triggered and our reaction. One author calls that the sacred pause. The time between when you are triggered and when you react. And then he says, when you create that little bit of sacred space between the trigger and the reaction, then you have a choice to make. Are you going to make an issue out of the thing, the angry email? Are you, going to make an, are you going to make an issue over that? Or are you going to overlook it? You can choose in that time to, to take offense and to react. Or you can let it go. According to the Proverbs, that is what's honorable. It's honorable when you can overlook things like that. Um, we're getting towards the end here. We forego our preferences for the sake of family unity. Now, Go with me on this for a moment. If we're building a culture that's a unified, diverse group, then that means there's going to be a lot of different opinions and preferences. And again, I'm suggesting that's a positive, that's a good thing, not a negative thing. 
But when that's the case, I believe it's the wise and it's the mature who should be willing to forego their non-essential preferences for the sake of the new and the inexperienced. That's what the scripture says is the way of the kingdom. For example, um, my favorite example of this is Luis Palau, who uh, passed away last year. He's this incredible Argentinian man who uh, led thousands and thousands to Christ over the years. He, was, he did all of those uh, like big festivals where hundreds of thousands of people would come at one time. And they, they had all kinds of uh, just music there and all kinds of bands. It's kind of hard to explain. But Phil, uh, my, my mentor who's here this morning, was uh, running, running the stage for him for a long time. It's really kind of cool stories. He can tell you lots of stories about Luis Palau. But famously, when he was in his 70s, he's going to be a super old man at this point. And he, um, and he was at backstage at one of the festivals that they were doing, right in the middle of when the biggest band was out there. And we're talking like probably 130 decibels plus. It's just so super, super loud. And and someone walks up to him and says, hey, Luis, do you, do you like the music? And he's all, what? <laughs> Can't hear at that point. He goes, do, do, you, do you like the music? And he goes, no, I, I love the people who like the music. And that just says something about his disposition, his attitude. He knows what he was there for. He's like, oh, man, like, it doesn't matter what music I like. What matters is the music that the people who are here like. The new and experienced, inexperienced, the ones who are far from God, the ones I'm here to reach, like I'm concerned about what they like and I'm going to do whatever I can in order, like forgo whatever preference I possibly can in order to make them feel at home here. I love that. Uh, the scriptures in Romans chapter 14 verse 1 says, accept the ones who are weak in faith without quarreling over disputable matters. I love that. He goes on to talk about food. What food is, you can eat and what food you can't eat? And he says, by the way, you can eat all kinds of food. Whatever food you want to eat, it's fine. But he says, if it causes a brother to stumble, then consider foregoing that food so that you don't stumble them. Verse 13 says, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I love that so much. One last kind of thought before I leave you. Wow, I went over time this morning. You're like, we know. We know. <laughs> yeah, you went over time. Um, Henry Nouwen is this contemplative um, Catholic writer. He says, when you were young, the world says when you were young, you were dependent and could not go where you wanted. But when you grow old, you'll be able to make your own decisions, go your own way, control your own destiny. But Jesus has a different vision of maturity. It's the ability and the willingness to be led where you would rather not go. The way of the Christian leader is not the way of upward mobility in which our world has invested so much, but the way of downward mobility ending on the cross. That is the way of Jesus. Jesus was led to the cross, despising the shame. But he did it for the joy that was set before him. This is how our attitude should be. I'm happy to prefer other people's needs and other people's interests above my own. I'm happy to do it. We practice hospitality. You guys are good at that. I encourage you, invite someone, not our family, you, someone else who's sitting next to you, to your right or left. Invite them to dinner tonight. Have them over to your place. I've got like basics class after this and then a meeting after that. And so I just plan on introverting out tonight. So don't invite me over, but invite somebody else over. There's so many incredible people to your right and left. Invite them over. 
for dinner, like the, the, the kingdom of God is, comes with eating and drinking, celebration around the table. There's something sacred about that. And finally, we resist the pull to make secondary things more central than celebrating the victory of Jesus. Man, since the beginning of the pandemic, when there's been all kinds of disunity and polarization, and it almost feels like we like getting in fights with each other now, or whatever, I've just been desperately searching among you all who are like the kinds of people who are like, you know what, we're not going to let anything pull us off the plot from the return of Jesus, Jesus King, and this is where we're going together. That's, that's the kind of leaders that God is looking for. Yes, life is crazy. Life is totally crazy. No, like not trying to minimize that at all, but it does not change who we're following. We are still grounded in the teachings and the lifestyle of Jesus, regardless of what's happening in the world around us. So part of what it means for you to be a spiritually mature person is to become like the guiding light from within a diverse community who always makes it about Jesus. Uh, there's this pastor in, out of New York who says, be the annoying person who always makes it about Jesus. And I love that line. I think it's so true. We need to be the kinds of people who are like, yeah, 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 of course. Yep, yeah, it, it, things are popping off. Things are going crazy. Last election cycle was wild and all of that, but I'm praying for Jesus to come back and to re- for him to return. That is where we are heaven-bent. We are heaven-bent in that direction. He's the one we're following. So I just want to leave you with a couple of quick reflective questions for you to consider as you work this out in your life. Um, is there anyone, any person or group of people that you've been in reluctant to embrace because of how they're different from you? Are there any preferences that you can forego for the sake of family unity? What are the things that you're like, oh man, I've been making this like a major primary issue and I'm like refusing to like do life with and hang with people who don't follow and conform to my secondary custom or value or opinion or whatever. Is it time for you to forego that for the sake of everyone else? Probably. How is Jesus challenging you to approach or to come to those people? And is there a way that you might be unintentionally or intentionally showing favoritism and reinforcing those old lines of division? It's time to aggressively buy that future vision of family love. And we want to challenge you to do that. (laughs) The question that I leave you with is, is Jesus returning to set up his reign here on the earth or not? And if Jesus is returning, man, I want to buy into that vision today. I don't want to get to the end of this life and be like, oh, I, I like totally missed the point, missed the plot. Sorry, we didn't do what you said. We were too busy living for ourselves. Thank you, Sarah, for sharing your story and how the Lord convicted you through Sam and Julie that like, man, I've been thinking about a lot of things, but I haven't been thinking about serving Christ. But now I'm going to give my life away for the sake of the kingdom. It's beautiful. That's exactly what we're talking about here. We're opening ourselves up to the vision that life is bigger than us and we're buying in aggressively. He's coming back. We're redrawing the lines of family love. Of course, the days are still dark. Of course, not glossing over that, pretending that's not true. But in our family, we don't show favoritism. In our family, we make room in our hearts for people who are different from us. We refuse to divide over things that are not Jesus or the gospel. And we, we love, we're actually glad, happy 
to prefer other people's interests above our own. That's the way of the Christian leader. And above everything else, we celebrate the victory, celebrate the victory of Jesus through singing, through worship, and through all kinds of different ways. But when we sing, we're retraining our hearts to glorify God and to love the thing that God loves. These rituals and these songs that we sing, they draw us to him in that way. Our one new family, as we sing heaven songs, it's a marker, it's a sign to our world, to the people in our community, that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is alive. A new creation has begun, that God is God, Jesus is King. Like the, as, we, as we sing aloud one song, take from one table of communion, and as we unite as every family under Christ, and we signal to the world that good news is here. The kingdom of God is here. And it challenges and welcomes people in. So would you stand with me and let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for how you have welcomed us in. If you did pick favorites, I wouldn't be one. But since you don't, I'm a full-fledged member in the family because I've trusted in you, Jesus. And the same is true of my sisters and brothers who've trusted in you. And God, we, we pray that you would keep us laser focused on that future vision and that those are the kinds of things that we want to invest in. To have the kind of faith and the kind of courage that our black African-American brothers and sisters in the late 19th century were able to show us and help pull into the present our future. And we want to be those people, God. We want to be those people in our time and in our space. Yeah, remember how divisive the years of Trump and Biden were? Remember how divisive things around COVID became and vaccinations and masks and the whole bit where people lost friends and people decided not to go to family Thanksgiving and people left their church and went to a new spot. Some people deconverted all the way and decided never to follow Jesus again. That's not who we are. We are the people who are filled with faith and trusting and believing that Jesus, you are coming back. Your promise is true. And when you say all of heaven and earth will be united under you, you mean all of us. So we sing out in praise to you. We get our eyes off of self and onto you. And we're so grateful to call you King and call you Lord. So church, let's respond to him. He's worthy of it. Let's not hold back today. So we're not gonna hold back. We're gonna come to the table of communion where we, this, part of the symbol there is that we're all taking from the same table. We all are a part of the same family. We're also opening the prayer wall for anyone who needs prayer for any reason. We're also singing. We're praising him. So let's give him what we owe him. Let's praise him this morning in response to what he has done. Jesus, we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.